At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to you want to talk to someone but not just anyone alma is there to help you find the right fit visit helloalma.com therapy 30 to schedule a free consultation today that's helloalma.com therapy 30 i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Larry Talbot. I had to take credit and responsibility for all that that monster had committed that and more. But before that, I just want to let everyone know right now that Risk is now seeking scary stories. We want to invite you to pitch us your scary stories, stories of near-death scrapes, extreme danger, encounters with dangerous people, ghost stories, Halloween-style stories, horror movie sorts of stories. And you should already know how to pitch us. You just go to risk-show.com slash submissions. On the submissions page at our site, there's a video that explains how to pitch us. You can also go to our SoundCloud page, Risk Show on SoundCloud. There's a file there called What Every Risk Storyteller Should Know. There's a lecture I give there that is really helpful for helping people to prep stories for the show. So check that out and send us your scary story pitches at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Also, paging all book lovers. Today's show is supported by Book of the Month. Book of the Month is a rapidly growing service with a simple goal to make sure you love what you read. Browse the five best books of the month and discover titles you wouldn't have found on your own. With exclusive pricing starting at just $10, you can get your favorites shipped to your doorstep for less. Book of the Month Bound to Delight, and get your first book for $10 at bookofthemonth.com slash risk. That's bookofthemonth.com slash risk. And finally, don't forget that stamps.com brings you all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Stamps.com makes it easy. They'll send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. Stamps.com will even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. No need to lease an expensive postage meter. We use Stamps.com. 
Studios.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com, enter Risk. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is a classic by herbie mann behind me now now we're calling this week's episode the monster and the man and this is quite an experience this is one of those risk episodes that's gonna walk you through a lot of life. This is the story of an abusive relationship, but the unusual thing is that the story is told by the person who was guilty of the abuse. And there's another story that I really feel you should hear in conjunction with this one. Back in October of 2016, we put out a risk episode. It was number 803 which was called Unbreakable. And that whole episode is one story, just like this whole episode is one story. Unbreakable was told by Melanie Hamlet, and it too was the story of an abusive relationship, but it was told by the person who was on the receiving end of the abuse. Well, when this week's storyteller, Larry Talbot, heard Melanie's episode he got the idea that maybe he should share about his own experience. So these two episodes, they have resonance together when you hear how one woman's story inspired one man to share his own. Also, though, I should say, Melanie has already heard the rough edit of Larry's story. She said she found it really hard to listen to at times. And she was concerned that others, especially others who have been in abusive relationships, might have a really rough time hearing it as well. But we all hope that as upsetting as some aspects of a story like this can be, that there's also a lot of value in hearing this perspective. So, without further ado... I will let the storyteller speak for himself. This is Larry Talbot with a story we call The Monster and the Man.
we all want to believe that we're the hero of our own story. For years, my favorite stories were variations on Beauty and the Beast. And then horror films. I loved Frankenstein's monster, the werewolf, all of these situations where there was this good man hidden beneath this horrible creature. This is a story where I found out that those fairy tales were a lie. This is a story where I discovered I wasn't the hero of my own story. And that when I looked in the mirror and saw the beast, I had to take credit and responsibility for all of the pain and destruction that that monster had committed. We'd been at the bar for a while. We had quite a few whiskeys at that point. A guy came up to Natalie and started hitting on her. I was furious. I was furious that he would assume that someone as beautiful as Natalie wouldn't be with me. And I was furious that Natalie didn't tell him to fuck off quick enough. I just, I wanted to fucking scream. I got up and, and we went out for a smoke. And it was January and it was fucking freezing outside and I just couldn't control it anymore. I lit into her, I looked at her in the eyes and I said, you fucking bitch, why didn't you tell him to fuck off quick enough? Why did you even talk to him? What did you think I was feeling? You didn't even fucking know I was there. Why were you doing this? And I could see that she just shut down. She just shut down. She wouldn't answer my questions. She wouldn't even uh, say a word, which made me even more angry. And I, I just, I, I fucking screamed at her, you fucking cunt. She walked away and I was left there with my rage, with my fists. I screamed. I screamed on a fucking street corner in the East Village. And there was a part of me that knew how ridiculous this was to be on the street and screaming at my wife just out of control. But I couldn't stop it. The part that knew this was ridiculous just couldn't stop myself from yelling. And then finally I walked away and I went back into the bar that we'd been at and I sat down and I had another whiskey and I fumed and shook and didn't say a word. She came back into, we sat in silence, we paid our bill, we caught a cab and headed home. And I was still just shaking with fury, but I was drunker now and my control was slipping. And as soon as we got back into the apartment, I started raging again. I called her a cunt. I told her she was awful. I 
just scream, why don't you ever fucking listen to me? Why don't you fucking listen to me, you fucking cunt? And then I guess I wore myself out and I stopped and I went to bed and I fell asleep leaving her in the living room. Nine years earlier, I met Natalie at the same acting studio that we were studying at. I was directing a play at the time, and I needed a stage manager. Um, I recruited her. I thought she was beautiful. I thought she was interesting. And I thought that I wanted to be around her. So we would all go out to the bar after the show, and we'd hang out, and we would talk, and we would laugh, and, you know, with the cast and with other actors till finally, more often than not, it was the two of us left alone at the bar together. Then we would say goodnight and stumble off in the opposite directions in which we lived. And then one day she got tickets to see a show in Brooklyn that a friend of hers was working on and asked me if I wanted to go to the show. So of course I said yes. On a Sunday afternoon, this beautiful Sunday afternoon, I met her in Brooklyn. When she came downstairs, she looked at the tickets and she started to flip out because she realized that the tickets were for another date. So, you know, I calmed her down a little bit and I, you know, said, well, why don't we just go out for a drink? And we found this shitty little sports bar not too far from her apartment. I remember there was like a two-top and it was underneath this light. It almost looked like it was in its own particular spotlight. It was it was like out of a movie. So of course we took this two-top and we started to talk. More in depth probably than we had at any point up till then. And we talked about our families and we talked about our love of theater and our feeling alone on occasion and feeling different and uh, our mutual love of David Lynch. We thought that he was like the greatest thing since sliced bread and we went into great detail in, on about his movies. She preferred the later ones. I was much more into like Eraserhead. I thought Blue Velvet was awesome. And we would debate that back and forth. Um, hers were Lost Highway. That was her favorite. We laughed a lot and we understood, we seemed to understand each other in this really kind of remarkable way. And then at one point in one of those lulls in conversation, I just looked at her and we smiled. I started to lean over the table to kiss her. And promptly knocked an entire full pint of beer into her lap. She kissed me back, sopping lap and all. And then the kiss broke up into giggles and it was magical in that little spotlight in the back room of that bar. And I walked her home and we kissed one more time at the gate to the building she lived in. And I kind of floated home after that.
And then things continued. We would go out on dates. We started to spend more time together. Um, I would spend time at her apartment, and then she would spend time at my apartment. And then, after we'd been dating maybe six to eight months at this point, her sister was getting married and leaving her apartment and offering it to Natalie to take over. It was this massive apartment in the East Village for a ridiculously cheap rent, so yeah, we took it. And we decided to move in together then. It was amazing in the beginning. You know, we had this beautiful apartment. We were living in the East Village. It was an easy commute to the studio, and things were good. So early on in our relationship, this big package arrived for Natalie. She opens up the package, and it is lingerie. This ex-boyfriend has sent her lingerie. Well, immediately, I'm upset by this. You know, who is this guy to be sending my girlfriend lingerie? And I told her. I was like, this was very upsetting to me. And she said, no, it's okay. You know, he, he, he doesn't have boundaries anyway, and this is the type of thing that he does. It doesn't mean anything. I said to her, I was like, this guy, he doesn't recognize that I'm there. He doesn't recognize that we are together. I mean, fuck him for sending my girlfriend lingerie. I mean, for fuck's sake, it was white lingerie. If he really knew Natalie, he would know that she doesn't like white. And my anger continued to build over this. And she continued to tell me, no, it's really, it's okay. You know, I don't care about this. You know, if you want, I'll send it back to him. And that wasn't what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear her say, I love you. I don't care about this guy. This guy is an asshole. And I wasn't getting that. And I got angrier and angrier. I couldn't hold my temper. And I yelled at her because I was furious that this fucker had sent my girlfriend lingerie. And it wasn't resolved, but I still held on to that anger that brewed in me. I, I would pace the apartment thinking about that box with that fucking lingerie in it and the fact that she hadn't sent it back yet. And what did that mean? Did she secretly like this guy? And there was a part of me that knew at the same time that the anger was well beyond what it should have been. But she wasn't hearing me. She wasn't seeing me. We would sometimes have fights because I felt bad about myself. Stupid things would get blown out of proportion. Little things, you know, she came home a little late. She didn't pick up a telephone call. Dishes weren't done, whatever it was. It was ridiculous, but it would come into this huge fight. But then it would go away and things were good. We never talked about whatever it was again and things were good. And then, Things were not so great. 
work was difficult for me to find after about a year together. I had lost my job and I was having difficulty finding more work. So the bulk of the financial burden fell on Natalie's shoulders and I would sit home, I would sleep late, I would stay up late, spend the afternoon in front of the computer and beat myself for not being able to take care of my part of the bargain. As that time stretched out, it became more difficult to find a job because of the self-loathing and the self-sabotage that I was doing. There were days where I would barely talk to Natalie or she would come and ask me a question and I would growl at her to just leave me alone. I don't know right now, just please, just leave me alone. I will, I will take care of this. And she would ask me how a job search went and I could feel the frustration and anger going up my spine. And I would do my best to control the anger I felt. And I was angry with her for asking that question. But there were also good times too. We had a lot of fun. We did a lot of theater together. We had, we created things. We built a, a little tiny theater company with friends and we did a couple of productions and we worked well together. And then I found some work. Things started to get a little bit better. After we were together for about six years or so, unfortunately our time in our lovely apartment in the East Village ended. We moved to Brooklyn. By the time we got out to Brooklyn, things in our relationship had started to feel uncomfortable. Even after I was able to start contributing, more and taking care of my fair share, it felt like we had forgotten how to talk to each other. It felt like she was slipping away. I have a theory, and in the theory, back in the old days, people would have a baby to save a relationship. These days, People get married to save a relationship. And so I asked her to marry me. And she said yes. We were overjoyed and our friends were incredibly happy. And it, it felt like a spark had returned to the relationship. There was one night we were talking about it right after I proposed. And she said to me, I will marry you, but I want you to see a therapist. She said, that's my one condition. And I got uptight and I got tense. I was like, what the fuck do I need to see a therapist? I'm fine. You're the one who has trouble listening to me. My world is good. But she laid down the law. And I didn't let myself go to the rage. And I said, yes. I agreed. I would go to see a therapist. And I did. 
as my therapist recalls, he was standing at his office door, and as I walked towards him, I appeared like this big, hulking creature moving towards him, and he was a little bit scared. We started with the basic stuff, and he asked me, he said, how is your relationship with the woman who would be my wife? And I told him it was fine. We had a great relationship. I couldn't ask for anything better. But I kept seeing him. I was going through the motions with him. Right? I was giving Natalie what she wanted. I was yesing her to death on this one. Right? I was going. Okay, so I was living up to my end of the bargain. And we got married. And it was a beautiful ceremony, and we had friends and family there, and a friend of ours got ordained at one of those internet things, and he married us, and it was really, really lovely. And then we went on our honeymoon, then we got back to New York, and it was the same. We still had problems talking to each other. We didn't know how to do that anymore. And so we had a routine where we would work, then we would meet at the bar, then we would drink and read, and then we would go home and we'd watch a movie on television. And this was our cycle. But the way the cycle was occasionally broken up was that we would fight. And this last night, when... I found myself yelling into the January sky, a freezing night. It had never been like that before. I mean, it had been bad, but it had never been like that. That night when I was yelling at her, I could see her almost visibly shrink and I felt my muscles just clenching and bulging even and I it was everything in my power to stay still and not move forward not move towards her so I beat her with words I called her a fucking cunt I said you're a fucking cunt you're a fucking bitch we went back to the bar, we paid our tab, and we called a cab, and we went back to Brooklyn. And in that cab, we didn't say a word to each other, but I was still vibrating with anger. I was still furious. And she felt it. I know she felt it. We were as far as part in the backseat of that cab as we could possibly get. And I paid the cab driver. And he went into the apartment, turned on the television and sat in silence. And we watched something that we weren't even watching until finally I got up and I went into bed feeling the anger finally flushing away 
and I fell asleep, or rather passed out. The next morning, I woke up. Natalie wasn't in bed. So I thought, you know, maybe she she gotten up early to go to work. Um, and then I went out into the living room and on the table was a note. She said, last night was enough. It was more than enough. I can't stay here. She said, I can't stay with you. I have to stay with a friend for now. And I broke down. I just, I broke down. I looked around and I saw that there were things of hers that were gone. That she had taken things with her. That she left in the night, probably right after I had fallen asleep. And I had never felt as alone and deserted as I felt that night. And I called her and she didn't really want to talk to me then. I so wanted her back. My heart was racked with this physical pain. I got frantic. I raced around the apartment. I, I, I paced constantly and my brain was going at a million miles an hour coming up with ways that I could get her back. I decided, well, one of the first things I'm going to do is I'm going to take my therapy seriously now. I'm going to do this for real now because she'll appreciate that and then things will be good and I'll win her back. My father has bipolar disorder and so I brought that up to the psychiatrist and he put me through, he asked me the appropriate questions and and I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder as well and that day was one of the greatest days of my life having that diagnosis was almost freeing I had a name to put on it. I had something that explained, to some degree, the deep depressions that I've been going through, and the rages as well. And now I understood that. I understood why I felt so separate from myself in those rages, that they were almost a hair's breadth from uncontrollable. And having that diagnosis and going on the medication also helped me to go deeper with my therapist. It cleared my mind. It helped me to stay even and answer his questions and tell the stories as truthfully and as wholly as I could. I realized or I saw things that I had never seen or wanted to see prior, I saw that my whole life up to that point had been chaos. I saw myself as a child moving to 
five different places before the age of seven. And all that time, my mother being around me and loving me and taking care of me and spending time with me and, and hearing me and taking me to the movies and introducing me to things that I would love for the rest of my life. And my father as being this dark, looming presence, someone who was always angry and quiet and, and, and you didn't approach dad. You didn't talk to him because he was scary. And I remember the fights. They would always have fights in the back room of the house, the back bedroom. And I think it was because they thought that I wouldn't hear the fights. But I heard them. I heard them yelling at each other. And I heard the anger and the rage and the hurt. I heard all of that. Lying in bed. And then the night that my dad came into the room and sat my brother on his lap and held me next to him and told us that that he and my mother were not going to be together anymore. And that we were going away to live with my mother. And we did. We moved. And things changed. And my mother disappeared from me. And I felt alone. It felt like my mother was choosing my brother at that point. And my father had chosen me. But my father was hundreds of miles away who I may talk to once in a while on the telephone or get a letter or spend a weekend with him once in a blue moon. And I would say to my mother, I want to go live with my father. And she would grab the phone and she would hold it to me and she would say, call him and see if he'll take you. And I stopped because I knew, I knew that he wouldn't. A little boy in third grade, knowing that his father wouldn't take him. And so I had to control things. That's what I, I learned. I, I learned that I was not going to be left alone again. I had to make sure that the person I loved wouldn't leave. And so I understood that what I'd been doing for nine years at that point, nine years, was making sure that Natalie wouldn't leave. During this period, too, she suggested that we go to couples therapy, and I thought, yes, we'll go to couples therapy. That and my therapy and the meds and my psychiatrist, is this is going to make it all right. I took all of it very seriously. We tried to go on dates. We went to the movies. I would travel up to where she was staying, and we would have dinner together. 
it was nice. It was tentative. I felt small, but it was okay. I had hope. Then a friend of ours passed away. For his memorial service, he requested a dance party. So this dance party was going to be the dance party to end all dance parties. Natalie decided that we were going to try to spend the night together after the party. And the party was amazing. There was dancing and drinking, and it was a celebration of this man's life. And Natalie disappeared. I didn't know where she'd gone, and I, I figured she was just in the bathroom. But she was gone for a long time, so I sent a friend to see if she was okay. And she finally came out, and she'd been crying. I could see it in her eyes. And she just said, I can't. I can't. I can't come home with you tonight. I can't. And she left. I stood at the bar and felt myself disappearing from the surroundings, just feeling more alone than I'd ever felt before. And we started couples therapy. And I was almost too embarrassed to talk about those things that I talked about with my therapist in those sessions. And I felt that something was changing in those sessions. I felt that Natalie was growing, that she was getting bigger and stronger, and I felt myself shrinking. And she would say how hurtful it was and how scared she was when I would blow up at her, when I would be cruel to her. And I could see the anger in her eyes, and I would start to get defensive. I would start to try to explain, you know. I started to try to explain that I just wanted her to stay. I wanted her to see me. I wanted her to hear me. And she said she did. She did hear me. She did see me. And she saw that I was filled with this rage and this anger. And she heard the words that I had beat her with. And then in the last couples therapy session we had, she lost it. She just, with such anger and hurt, it twisted her face and she yelled at me, You screwed the pooch! <laughs> I thought it was the funniest thing ever. And I didn't, but I felt like I was giggling on the inside. It was everything that I could do to control myself from not bursting out in laughter. Um... screwed the pooch and yet at the same time she was right and I knew she was right and I knew it was done 
And even though I was going through the therapy and that we were doing the therapy together and everyone's in a while we would go on a date. I saw clearly now that we just kept moving apart. Hope tried to convince me that these were good things, that, you know, this was going to get her back. But in that moment, when she told me I'd screwed the pooch, I knew she was right. And that it was time to divorce. And so we left the session and we went out onto the sidewalk and it was this gorgeous spring day, not a cloud in the sky and the air was clear and it was cool and just a perfect pristine day and the leaves were coming out and there was relief. I think we both just felt relief. We decided that why not? Let's go and start the process. And we went to a process serving company who does divorces for $400. No lawyers. And we had nothing. So that was fine. And we giggled on the way over. We went in and sat down. And the woman who dealt with us, I'm sure she thought we were batshit crazy because we just giggled through the entire process. We were just like... <sighs> was like the first date and when we went back out on the sidewalk in front of the company and we hugged and we held each other and I knew that we both loved each other and she said that she loved me and I know that I loved her for a long time it was this twisted broken love and it wasn't it wasn't a grown up love it was a it was a child trying to protect himself but I loved her as much as I could and then she turned around and walked away and I walked away and a few months later the divorce was final and I never spoke to her again. I continued to work with my therapist and continued to go deeper and deeper and I stayed on my meds and I worked very hard to not be the man I'd been anymore. I just wanted to be a good man now. Not an angry boy any longer. You know, I started right at the very beginning. It was like a patient who had had a profound brain injury and had to learn to walk again, to teach the legs how to take those steps, to really incorporate that and think 
really hard. Every move was conscious. Every time I took a step, it was a conscious effort. But eight years on, it was in the muscle memory now. And then I heard a story on risk told by a woman named Melanie Hamlet. And it was a story of how she found herself in an abusive relationship and how she was able to get herself out of it. What blew me away, what was so different about that story than any other versions of that story, including my own, was that she had such compassion. Melanie wasn't letting her abuser get off the hook. She wasn't forgiving him of the awful things that he had done, but she still had compassion for him and for herself. She didn't beat herself up or think she was less than because of this relationship. And she refused to characterize her abuser as a monster. These were whole people. They weren't things. And it was the first time I think that I fully understood that I wasn't a thing. I'd been a very bad man. And I don't deny that. And I own everything that I did. And I will carry those awful things to the day I die. And I do not look for forgiveness for those things. But this was the first time I fully understood that I was not just a monster. And so I reached out to her and I said, I was that guy. I was controlling. I was manipulative. I was abusive and I screamed and did horrible, horrible things. But I also was able to find my way out to the other side. And even then, it wasn't until hearing her story that I missed a crucial piece of healing that I didn't even know that I needed. And she responded. And we started to talk. And it seems that I gave her the exact same gift that she had given me. She needed to know that a man could do that. That a man who was abusive could find a way to the other side as I had. And so it was through her that I found that I needed to tell this story. I needed to make sure that a man out there somewhere discovered that he wasn't alone. And he could change, that he wasn't locked in to this thing that he had become and that it was in his power and his alone. Nobody else could do this for him because nobody else did it for me. But we have a choice. And so now I continue and will continue to work on being the best man I can possibly be.
is all for this week's episode folks this is jack johnson covering dylan behind me now and we just heard from larry talbot thank you so much to larry and thank you so much to jeff Barr. all of our radio style stories are edited by our episode editor jeff Barr, and just another remarkable piece of work right there today Remember, if you are a book lover, Book of the Month is a rapidly growing service with a simple goal to make sure you love what you read. You can browse the five best books of the month and discover titles you would not have found on your own. With exclusive pricing starting at just $10, you can get your favorites shipped to your doorstep for less. Book of the Month, Bound to Delight, and get your first book for $10 at bookofthemonth.com slash risk. I'm going to let you know where Risk is appearing live next on July 26. We're back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. July 26 at the Bell House in Brooklyn. On August 11th, we're back in Toronto, Canada at the Great Hall. August 11th, we're at Toronto, and you know what? We're still taking pictures for that one. The theme is outrageous. Now, on August 18th, we're having a very special show. It's not a risk show, but it's a show that is being produced by our school, the Story Studio, and it's called In It Together, Stories of Strength in Diversity in New York City at the Connolly Theater, stories from people of all walks of life, people who are immigrants, people of color, people with disabilities, LGBT people, and more. Stories about how people came to value and embrace their unique identity and effect change that way. Now, we're still taking pitches for that one as well. You can pitch us directly at the email address cindy at thestorystudio.org. That's C-Y-N-D-I at thestorystudio.org. Then on the very next night, August 19th, we're back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. On September 9th, we're in Salt Lake City, Utah. Salt Lake City on September 9th. The theme is unexpected. Still taking pictures for that one. On November 3rd, we're in Baltimore at the Creative Alliance. The theme is Obsession. On November 9th, we're in Chicago at Lincoln Hall. The theme is Revealing. On November 10th, 
We're in Madison, Wisconsin for the first time at the High Noon Saloon. The theme is huge. And on November 11th, we're at the Magic Bag in Detroit. The theme that night is surprise. Finally, on December 2nd, for the first time ever, we're in Phoenix, Arizona at the Valley Bar. The theme is jaw-dropping. Now, for all of those shows, we are still taking pitches. So go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. There's a video there where I explain to you how you can pitch us. If you go to SoundCloud and look up Risk Show, there's a big long file you can listen to called What Every Risk Storyteller Should Know that gives you some tips on how to prep a story for us. There's all sorts of ways that we can help you to share your story with us. So reach out to us at pitches at risk-show.com. Check out that submissions page of ours and check out that SoundCloud file and you'll have a lot of ammo for pitching us your story in the future. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I see.